This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. What is wrong with me? We had such a filling lunch, and now I'm like, <laughs> it's nine thirty at night. What do you mean? What's we, wrong with you? We um, well, I ate a little before I took a nap, but um, but we ate late. Not that late. We ate like two. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been almost eight hours. I guess. I'm just like ravenous. <laughs> you normally eat at noon, and then you have dinner at what, like six thirty-seven? So that's less time. Yeah. In between lunch and dinner than you it's had true. today. It's true. Um, I'm on a weird schedule right yeah. now. And also stress, man. It'll do it. Yeah. I was so pissed when I came home. And my dad does this thing now that I absolutely fucking hate. Uh-uh. Because it minimizes my chances to have cake. So he, whenever he gets a cake or anything sweet, he will cut it up and then freeze a bunch of them for later. Why don't you just take it out of the freezer? Well, I can, but also it's not as good afterwards. Yeah. And then it's like, like I go and there's one slice of cake left. left and I was like, you fucking cake hoarder. What the hell? It's not your cake. It is my cake. It's not. It's partially my cake. No, it's not. (laughs) It's like, this is ridiculous behavior. Well, that's not going to help you when you're hungry anyway. I mean, it helps my soul. You know, the other day, me and Mike went to Walmart. It was actually... Uh, during my lunch break because we had no power at the office. Uh-huh. On the way to the Walmart is a the... bakery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And you were like... I, I was have... like, your mother has stressed me out so much that I need the comfort of an Italian bakery right you know now. You I really like right now? Crumble <laughs> cookies. Mm. Oh, we should go. No. <laughs> I can't. I'm nowhere mm. near a crumble. And I can't go all the way out. I know. We have one close, but not that not close. Not that close. You have one close to you. There's another one opening close to me. Ooh, congratulations. <laughs> There's one on my way home Out? from work. Oh, oh yeah. That's so good. sometimes I... That's good. Um, because they are... I do love that Stanzi Potenza video. Yes. Where it's like, because there are three, like three sticks, three sticks, of, sticks butter of butter in, in every crumble cookie. And there are, and they're so good. They're but I also, really I always good. get like three of them, and they last me forever because I yes. cut them into fourths. Yeah, and you then just I like... pick a little piece. Mm-hmm. I love those things. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we are in holiday mode yeah, and right now. nothing sweet and yummy at my house. No. Do you want to take some of, some of ours? <laughs> what do you have? We have pumpkin pie left, and we have apple pie left. Probably the same things you have. No. Aw. I want crumble cookies. <laughs> I have a um, Cadbury caramel chocolate bar Ew, upstairs. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> You're making it worse. Aw. <laughs> we had brownies on Thanksgiving, and I didn't eat any because I was like, there's going to be leftovers, but someone took them all. So I was mm. like, no brownies. Yeah, but now you get to start your holiday baking experiments. I wouldn't call them experiments. That's rude. (laughs) No, I mean like, because you know how you're always like, I'm trying this recipe for this. And you're like, no, I want to do something else with it a little bit, you know? So you kind of like. (laughs) I don't know that I do Like you were doing test runs with your pies and stuff. Well, that was just because I had never made those pies before. For I never made the crust on its uh, own. Okay, the crust my came grandma, out good because my grandma always made them. Yeah, so it's my first time making it by myself. The crust didn't come out good, but I appreciate you saying that. Oh, I I was just it eating was the crust so off of that pie. Crumbly. It uh, like crumbled like apart. It. When it you get... tasted fine, like it was mm-hmm. nice and flaky and like yeah. fatty. Which is a weird flavor. I'd say buttery, but it's made with Crisco, not butter. Uh huh. Um, real um, real depression era yeah. shit. Yeah, <laughs> but like. It just, like, Jakey was like, it was really hard to eat. I could barely eat it because the crust was so crumbly. But it was. Like, every time you went to take a bite, it was, I just, I didn't put enough water in. Oh, okay. I was watching that Try Guys episode when I was taking a nap before. I was watching the burger one uh-huh. where he coats everything with mayonnaise. Yes. 
Yeah. And he's like, funny. well, it is just whipped egg yeah. and oil. And oil. <laughs> like, uh, okay. That was very funny. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're in the holiday spirit. Yay. Um, Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Hanukkah is like one of the days of Hanukkah is during Christmas this Yay. year. How fun. It is fun. I know. I love it. Socks for all. Mm-hmm. And pencils. And pencils. <laughs> Um, so today we are talking about holiday horrors, a bit of a broad topic, but we kind of wanted to do something that was like a little more open for topic choice. So mm. Reppy goes first. Do I? <laughs> yeah. Didn't I go last last time? No. You, well, you went last last time. Oh, I did. But you go first this time. What What was last Last, though, you mean the one we recorded yesterday? No, but that's coming out next. We were recording out of order. The boat one. Yes. The one we recorded. In the so closet. that one, I also went last then. Yes. So, so we're, we're gonna, gonna have to sandwich them. Yeah. Oh well, well. I'm a little low energy right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're like, what's what's his name? Who did he say? Oh, um, Jeb Bush. <laughs> low energy. Yeah, I'm a little like Jeb Bush. You know, me and Jeb have a lot in common. Please clap. Yeah, please stop. Um, so I apologize. Or we could switch if you want, and then I can back and forth the episodes. I don't know. No, actually, meant. none of that made sense. <laughs> I don't sense. think any of it will matter. I do. Yeah. I do have it out of order. Don't worry. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Our brains are working. Um, look, it's late. Tomorrow's the last day. We're recording this on a, on a Saturday. So tomorrow's Sunday, and mm-hmm. then it's back to work, and Thanksgiving just happened. So we were just off for a while. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. Tomorrow I, I have to drive. To I have to drive home, and I'm not gonna be home until like five, and then mm. I have to order groceries. And you don't have to go get them though. <laughs> I mean, technically I do, but I'll probably just pay the extra money for them to deliver it yeah. to me. But you get a cat tomorrow. I know, but I can't play with the cat for like eight hours. I have to stay in its freaking carrier for. But when you get home and you order your groceries, then you can. That's true. And it'll acclimate. And I think she's going to acclimate pretty quickly. I do too. She may rip down some of your Christmas decorations. I don't have any of that. That she could rip down. Okay, yeah. good. Oh, she's a cutie. Yeah, she is cute. I got a cat. Um, because I'm lonely and no one loves me. Um, okay. Little so. minivan. Little mini. Yeah, her name is minivan because she got thrown out of a van when she was a kid. Cute. <laughs> I'll call her Minnie. Minnie. Okay. Okay. Um, holiday horror. Yeah. Also, I'm Austin. Okay. You're not. Gonna... <laughs> well, if you're Austin, then I'm Reppy. You're just assuming my process of elimination. Yeah. Like. What? So in 1994, year we were born, Tracy Martins, nope, Mertens. I thought it was Martins. You texted this name to me. M-E-R-T-E-N-S. Yeah, so actually, one of my ex-boyfriends, his cousins had this last name, and it looks like it should be Mertens, but it's Martins. Okay. So in 1994, there is no A. The E, I mean, you kind of swallow it. In nine. <laughs> that means nothing. That is useless. In 1994, Tracy Martins was a 31-year-old mom of two, a 12 and 11-year-old, and was originally from Rockdale, which is, these are all British. It's happening in Britain. Okay. So the names, who knows? You know how mm-hmm. they like to pronounce things. Those fucking Brits. She had briefly moved to Birmingham in 1992, but she had moved back to Rochdale in November of 1994 with her kids and her boyfriend, Joey. Hmm. Tracy and Joey had dated on and off since they were teenagers. One of Tracy's sisters recalls that in the summer of 94, Tracy left Joey briefly, bringing the kids back to Rochdale to stay with another sister for a couple of weeks. Tracy didn't want Joey to know where she was, and she acted scared. She also exhibited some unusual behaviors. She used to tape up the letterbox mm. and the windows and the curtains so that they wouldn't move. But she did later return to Birmingham. And she did later, when she did return to Birmingham, she started dating Joey again. Okay. So it's not clear why they moved from Rochdale to Birmingham in the first place, nor why they returned Speaking in 2020, Tracy's daughter said that that year when they moved, there were no presents under the Christmas tree. 
And she suggests that must have been because they moved so quickly because usually they were the kind of family that would pile tr- like it wasn't like there's no presents then Santa comes. It's yeah. like you pile presents up and mm-hmm. then Christmas Eve would come and the Santa ones would be under there. Yeah. So it was unusual for them to have a tree but no presents under it at all. So Tracy returned to their former home in Cattles Grove Neshels, which is a ward of Birmingham. On the evening of December 22nd, 1994, the visit was described as a chance visit, meaning that no one really knew in advance that she would Mm. be there. She planned on picking up a few belongings like the family's benefit books and some other things while she was there. So basically, they're living in this new place, and she's like, I'm going to run back to the old one and pick up some things. I do like chance visit instead of like it was like an impromptu visit, you know, chance visit. Cheshire police believed Tracy's original plan was to return to Rochdale the same day, but instead ended up staying overnight at her sister-in-law's house nearby. And ended up visiting her old home on the morning of December 23rd. And we don't know if the sister-in-law was Joey's sister or like one of a, her brother's, one of her brother's wives, wives or something. We're yeah. not sure. Mm-hmm. Some say that she was returning that day not only for paperwork, but to get those gifts that were underneath that oh. should have been underneath the tree that they were like already there, mm-hmm. and that she was like, "We'll keep them there while we move, so we mm-hmm. don't lose them." And yes, yeah, some more like important paperwork as well, like uh, birth certificates, things like that. That we're just like, let's leave them here so we don't lose them, yeah. and when we're ready to, we can go back and get them. Either way, it had been about five weeks since they had left that home. And when Tracy arrived to the home, she at first thought that it looked completely normal. But as she approached, she realized that someone had spray painted the word death on the window downstairs. Tracy had been at the house for only 10 minutes before things went haywire. At first, there was a knock at the door around noon. And Tracy went to answer it. At first, she ignored it, but it was it just kept coming. So she went to answer it. At first, she thought, like, maybe something was being delivered or, like, a salesman because she wasn't expecting anyone because mm-hmm. no one lived there. Yeah. <laughs> when she opened the door, two men burst in and shouted, where's Joey? Tracy responded that Joey wasn't there and that he didn't live there anymore, that they li- had moved. Um, she shouted at them to leave and that there wasn't anything in the house like worth taking or anything. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of a struggle. For some reason, they didn't leave. Instead, the man blindfolded Tracy, bundled her into their car, which was a yellow Ford Escort, and drove her away from the home. Mm. No one at the time reported hearing screaming. And that's kind of weird because the home she lived in, they call it a home, like a house, but it was actually more of like a condo. Like both of her walls shared. I think I know a what wall. you're talking about. It's like in a England. brick. Yeah. Yes. And so the there's like a half wall mm-hmm. in the front for like privacy behind yeah. it. But then you're sharing walls yes. and you're sharing walkways. Yes. It's like a house, but connected to a whole line of other houses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Even though everyone was so close, no one reported any screams or anything like that also no one had reported the vandalism to the window which makes the police think that either it happened as like right before the crime committed or that either it happened before the crime like right before the crime that day or that she actually didn't see it when she was walking in Mm. and that it happened as the crime was happening and that she remembers them seeing it like being painted on Mm -hmm. you know like as she was leaving we're not sure of her timeline of when she actually saw it okay so we don't know when the window was broken yes well we don't know when it was painted Mm. with with the words death yeah tracy was driven to eaton churchyard in cheshire which was about an hour's drive the church is what a typical old stone church looks like it has like a tower on the left hand side that kind of looks castly like it has those square things at the top you know and it's got a big, like, arched, do- like, wooden door in the front. Right in front of that, there's a graveyard. And then there's a walkway in between the church and the graveyard down to a gate that meets the sidewalk. There's, like, three okay. steps up to the gate. There's a gate and then the walkway up to the church. Okay. So around 4 p.m. on December 23rd, the yellow escort pulled up to the steps and dragged Tracy out by her hair. They threw her against the steps and poured gasoline on her. And it's unknown if she was unconscious at the time or not. 
However, a few minutes later, people nearby heard women screaming coming from the front steps of the church. When they raced to see what had happened, there was a fireball on the front steps. To the point where it took people getting really close to realize it was a woman on fire and not like burning trash or rubble or something. Despite the bitterly cold night, her clothes were still smoldering and her burns were so horrific that one rescuer said he originally thought that she was wearing a costume. (gasps) A gas canister was later recovered by the police that had been ditched nearby. Somehow, though, Tracy was still alive with 90 to 95 percent burns to her body. So she was covered in burns. That's awful. But she was still able to talk to police, which gave them a lot of information. She said the attackers were black men around 30 years old, big and fat with Birmingham accents, who also spoke in a foreign language, which she thought might be Patos, which is a Jamaican dialect. Mm-hmm. And the police also agreed that that makes sense for that area. Patois. Is that how you call it? Yeah, it's weird. What's Patos then? Nothing. It's, it's pronounced Patois. Yeah, but Patos is a language. Oh, is it? Pretty sure, or yeah, it's a type of Jamaican money. is a uh, patois. Why is it said like that? Yeah, it is because it stems oh. from French. Oh. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm thinking of money. I don't know what pitos is. Okay, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so this makes sense to the police because during the 1990s, there was a drug war playing out between two Birmingham gangs, the Burger Bar Boys. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, for sorry, between more than two gangs. The top gangs of the time were the Burger Bar Boys, the Johnson's Crew, and the Yardies Gangsters. These are the least scary gang names yes. I've ever fucking so, heard in my life. Also, I saw a picture of the car. Yeah. Also the least scary yeah, car Yeah, it's I've like, what the fuck? The Yardies Gangsters were made up of mostly men from Jamaican heritage, and they entered the UK drug scene and brought a new kind of brutal violence that the gangs hadn't been portraying there yet. Mm-hmm. And it would later lead to a serious influx of violent crimes between rival gangs. Mm-hmm. A lot of these men, because they were of Jamaican descent, spoke Patois. Mm-hmm. It's P-A-T-O-I-S, right? Mm-hmm. Patois. Okay, good. Because I was like, maybe I am. Maybe that is No, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Patas. Maybe I'm thinking of Peyote. I don't know what I'm thinking of, but I when I saw that word, I thought it was that's how it was pronounced. Patois is also like kind of a slang way of talking. It's not. It's like not its own language. I don't know. It just says it's a Jamaican dialect. Patois can refer to pigeons, creoles, dialects or vernaculars, but not commonly to jargon or slang. Okay, God. So it could be like a like a creole type of a creole language. Again, all I know that is it's a okay. Jamaican dialect. Okay. I can't really say much of what it is. Apparently, though, they knew that this was from Jamaica. So whatever language it was, whether it was referred to as Peta okay. or not, was Jamaican. Okay. That's all I know. Got it. Because that's why, if you remember the video from some award show where Chet Hanks is talking and people are like, what the fuck is wrong with him? He was speaking Patois. Patois, yeah. No. That's why everyone's like, what is Fucking wrong with him? him. Okay. <laughs> So the police, like I said, were able to interview Tracy while she was awake in the hospital for a little bit. But unfortunately, hours later, she died in the oh. hospital from her burns. Now, this this is like a little side thing. It got me thinking about burn victims. And did you know only 20% of TBSA victims, which are people who have burns covering their entire body, survive? Only 20%. Wow. And most of the victims don't die right away. They die within the first 24 hours. It just seems so horrific. Most of them make it to the hospital and are awake. When Tracy was wheeled into the hospital, they said that they already knew she was a dead woman Mm -hmm. and that her brain just didn't realize it yet. So essentially, a lot of times in this burn stuff, the body, because it's such an amazing thing, in trauma, it's protecting you. And so it doesn't realize that there's no chance of recovery for mm-hmm. hours and hours, sometimes a day, up to a day before the body realizes, oh, we're dying. Let us die yeah. kind of thing. Because your body's natural thing is like survival. Survival. It, and let's... nothing in the brain and the heart necessarily are damaged. It's just yeah. it's the... there's no way to recover from that amount of damage to your body. Yeah. Your body won't regenerate after that. So. Right. Uh, so it takes some time for your brain and your organs to realize that and actually shut down. 
so the brief time she was alive, she said that she didn't know who her killers were um, and only could give that short description to them. But to this day, no one has been charged with her death. Mm -hmm. However, there are some theories. So to recap the clues, she described her kidnappers as two overweight black men in their 30s. The men wore brown leather baseball caps and thigh-length leather jackets. They spoke in a foreign language that she recognized with as Jamaican of some kind. Um, the suspects had asked where's Joey when they went to kidnap Tracy. She described the car as scruffy and that one of the doors on the yellow car was silver. Mm. Um, it also says that there was a yellow cutty toy stuck to the back window. I I don't know what that means. If if they mean like um, like a stuffed animal, like a mm-hmm. is it like a brand? Like a I have no idea. Okay. I looked up Cuddy and I couldn't see anything. Okay. I'm also wondering if this, if they misspelled the word cuddly, because oh. I looked up Cuddy and I couldn't find it. Like is slang. it with a C? Yeah, C U D D Y. Oh, that's so weird. But I didn't know if it was like. You know those things sometimes you stick on the dash yeah. and they just like like bobbleheads and stuff. Mm-hmm. Could be something like that. Yeah. Um, but there was just a toy on the back in the back window. Yeah. Tiny blood stains were found in the house that she was getting stuff from that weren't hers. So there is DNA evidence that they can use to eliminate suspects, but it, it doesn't match any offenders in the system currently because they ran out against those, obviously. Mm-hmm. Another big clue happened weeks later when a couple who owned Bunny, some violent drug dealers, reported that, to the police that they had received a phone call telling them to pay up or they will, quote, get what Tracy Martin's got. Mm. But it's uncertain if they meant hey, we did this to Tracy Martins and we'll do it to you, or if they just were referring to a very famous case. Yeah. case. Mm-hmm. So the theories at this point was that the police believe the killing is linked to Tracy's boyfriend, Joey, who's also the father of her kids, mm-hmm. who is reportedly an addict um, and owed a lot of debt to drug dealers. Tracy's sister theorizes that Tracy did not reveal Joey's location out of fear for her children, Mm. and that's maybe why they killed her. Joey insists that he's not the cause of Tracy's murder, but he does admit that he owed people money at the time of her death. Mm -hmm. In 1995, a Birmingham man was charged with the conspiracy to murder Tracy, Mm -hmm. but the evidence was dropped due to insufficient evidence, and we don't know the man's identity. Mm. Um, The case was also featured on Crime Watch in 2020, after which police were given a possible name of one of the killers and a possible motive, but nothing has come of that yet. Obviously, COVID then happened and the world yeah. shut down. So, oh, my gosh. So as of yet, no one has been arrested, but wow. the case is still open. <gasps> How terrible for everyone. And we don't know if she was conscious when she was thrown on the steps, but they heard her screaming, so she was conscious mm-hmm. when she was burned. Okay. Oh, so she That's felt awful. every <sighs> bit of it. Yeah. And a lot of times, like, I went into a deep dive of burn victims because I, I mm-hmm. just got so curious after reading, like, one article. I was like, huh. And a lot of times, even though they drug you up, obviously they give you the most drugs ever, yeah. especially in cases like that because they're normally, like, apparently after working in, a like, a trauma unit for enough time, you can tell if someone's going to survive burns or not. Mm-hmm. And so if they're going to die, they kind of drug them. But your nerves are so shot and haywire that a lot of times you're still in pain. Yeah. Not as much pain, obviously, had they not given you them. Mm -hmm. But your nerves are constantly like, what's happening? We're raw. Like, we're touching the air we're not supposed to be. And just being on any kind of having any clothing or cloth or sheets. Yeah, they're normally naked and just like, Mm -hmm. you're just, I mean. I would just want to sit in a bath of like a lotion. Yeah. But they probably don't do that for infection reasons. Yeah. Well, if you're going to die anyway. But, I mean, they probably yeah. try to save them. I guess there's always the small chance that a miracle happens. Yeah. Because but... 20% do survive yeah. of those cases of mm-hmm. like, oh, this person's going to die. And then, oh, wait, they survived. Yeah. It's just so horrific. So. It reminds me of when you covered that volcano. Yes. That girl yeah. who's killing it now mm-hmm. on TikTok. She finally got to take her mask off. Yeah. She's like gorgeous. Oh. Well, I'm glad that worked out for her. That's yeah, I mean, she least... still has no fingers and her dad, her dad and sister are dead still. But, you win some, you lose some. But at least she didn't lose her nose. Yeah. She's no Voldemort. No, nope. can't. 
can't yeah. do that anymore. Then you got to wear those and play I, glasses. I really want Nike to sponsor her because she's the only reason she has her feet still is because, is of, because the Ni- of the yeah. Nikes. Um, okay, well, that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> that was very tragic. That was a bummer. It's okay. The, the other option that I was going to do was the Kenya or the Congo. Sorry, the Congo massacre. That's a Christmas one? Yeah, Heaven at Christmas. Oh, I didn't know that. With, uh, what's his face? Do you remember, uh, what's his name? Coney 2012 yes. or whatever. That's Coney, him. It's from uh-huh. that. It was at Christmas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, like 800 people died. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, that is very sad. Yeah. And he's still, he's just living his best life somewhere. Yeah, we didn't stop him. We didn't. <laughs> we, you know, after all of that, Coney 2012. 12, 12 stuff because yeah. the documentary came out. Yeah. No, he nope, murdered nothing and raped happened. a lot of people. Yep. Yeah, that happened. Anyway, well, what's your story about? My story Christmas? also has murder and rape in it. Um, so this is going to be great. Um, I am going to take Mine didn't it. have rape in it. Well, you, you just said oh, he murdered because, and yeah. raped a lot of people. So I'm going to take it back a little bit. You know I love my, like, 1800s Christmas family murders. Sure. Um, That's something I know about yeah, you. Yeah. The Lawson family. Yeah. Still. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going back to 1881. Okay. I love that year. Yeah. That's my favorite <laughs> It's the <year>. best year. <laughs> that year and whatever year it was where the Challenger exploded. Those oh, my, my God. my favorite years. <laughs> So, in 1881, the Gibbons family was living in a small one-and-a-half-story house in East Ashland. I love one-and-a-half. One yeah. Like, there was an attic, or you think it was just a low... It was, so, there's a, a second story, but it's it's the half the, the size of the first okay. floor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, they were living in East Ashland, Kentucky. Martha and John Gibbons rented the home from a local merchant, And they weren't really a typical couple for that time period. Martha was 20 years younger than John, and the two had a, quote, whirlwind courtship. Which you'd think 20 years back then wouldn't have been an issue, but apparently it was. Yeah. According to her family, Martha was eager to start a family, and John seemed to have some money and was game to start popping out kids. Cool. So Martha's family, her father especially, was unhappy that Martha chose to marry John due to his advanced age. Uh, John was, huh? Oh, I think you're going to tell us. What? I was going to ask how old he was. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. <laughs> what? You mean you don't know? <laughs> well, when they met or when, because I mean, if you're thinking when they met, what is she? Yeah, like 16, how, 17? How, uh, how much older is he? Like advanced? 20 years, I said. Okay, but. Yeah, so, so like when they what, met. So he's going to be like in his 40s, maybe. But she was 16 when they met? I, I don't know how old how she was. How do you was. not know? That's his, like a big part of the story. Things. And also, we're, through this story, we're going to go through, they've been together for a while okay, by so the time this Maybe happens. it's made up so far. So, yes, it so, is made up. <laughs> yeah. I made all this up. But he, God so, damn it. Also, so just think liar. about it. Like if, he, if she's 17, he's 37 or whatever. Right. But we don't know if she was 17. Austin's just speculating on the pedophilia here. I am speculating. John worked as a carpenter. And when the couple moved to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, he was awarded a contract to build the new county jail. He did, however, win this contract by first being elected marshal due to his popularity among the townspeople. Okay. What's the difference between a marshal and a sheriff? I'm not sure. Okay. This is a question for someone else. (laughs) Martha and John began their family, and everything seemed to be going very well for them. That was until the jail, which was nearly completed, burned to the ground. (gasps) Who burned it to the ground? We don't know. This prompted the Gibbons to move to Missouri, where they purchased a small plot of land. They can't just rebuild? I know, jail. but I think he he had put everything he had into that because, you know, you're buying lumber, you're buying all that shit. He has to buy it? It's the county well, jail. Yeah, but he's a carpenter, so he was buying it, and then they were probably like, oops, no, we're not paying you back for that. Oh. Yeah. They should have taken him to court. Yeah. I don't know what the situation was, but it nearly ruined them. John was conscripted to fight in the Civil War right after they moved to Missouri. Oh. So this interrupted his home life and his career. Does that mean forced to? Conscripted means they said. Drafted. Yes, pretty much drafted. But just a different word. Uh, yeah. To make people Just an old dumb. timey word. <laughs> <laughs> so when he returned from battle, he found that his land had been confiscated because they lost. 
<laughs> the South lost. For anyone who didn't know. Gotcha. Wait. What? <laughs> <laughs> After relocating back to West Virginia for a short time, the Gibbons family landed in Ashland, Kentucky. There, as in Point Pleasant, the family was well-liked and John was urged to run for mayor. He lost by a very small margin. But we don't know what the margin is. We don't. And we don't know his age. We don't. And not at this point. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> seems fake. Fake news. <laughs> but also, it seems like his time in the war had, you know, some really bad effects on him. Some people say the war is not good for you. <laughs> the war, unfortunately, he didn't glow up during the war. <laughs> like a lot of men did. Yeah. Because well, a lot of men went in as 14-year-old boys and yes. came out as hardened 20-year-olds. Exactly. Um, he was already too old. <laughs> yeah. By some accounts, he drank a lot, maybe right. some bad financial decisions, all of that. Yeah. And PTSD from watching all of your friends die. Yeah, that too. So... Martha and John had three adolescent children living in their house at this time. Were they, they theirs? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> you said living in like they were renting out space. They're just collecting yeah. them. 17-year-old Robert Robbie Gibbons, 14-year-old Fanny Gibbons, and 11-year-old Sterling Gibbons. It is noted that the couple had more than one older daughter, one of whom was named Kate Shore. She was married and she lived across the river in Ohio. They had also lost their five-year-olds just a year before. Yeah. Drug over to Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. You know it. Opium, actually. No, he was. He was constricted or whatever. <laughs> Conscripted into the army. He's the drummer boy. Where you think they, of a... they load him into the cannon. <laughs> He's a human cannonball. That's his job in the army. I hope so. He doesn't get to carry a bayonet that's twice his size. No, he says a human cannonball. Yep. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the Gibbons family was considered impoverished. And Robbie, the eldest son, was the family's breadwinner. Robbie worked at the Norton Ironworks factory in town as a nail feeder. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, you know, he gets them all nice and plump. <laughs> and he feeds the he feeds nails? the nails. No. He feeds them into a machine, basically. It seems like there should be another machine that does <laughs> should. that. Should. Um, Robbie was well-respected by the community and his co-workers due to his strong work ethic and the fact that he performed the same tasks all of his peers did, only he did it with one leg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was just a detail, yep. small detail. Also, he had one, one leg. leg. Robbie had lost his leg when he was just seven years old in one of the most old-timey ways imaginable. Can I guess? Yeah. Um, plane crash. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, was I feel it like, farming? No, but I feel like you could get lawn. this answer right. Um, it was the sickness? Uh-uh. But it wasn't a farming accident? No. Did it get taken under a wheel? A wagon wheel? It's a goddamn. It's, it's always a, those goddamn wheels. It's a rail car. So he had fallen under an empty rail car that was being pulled alongside the tracks, and his leg was severed just below the they knee. They gotta just stop dangling off these carts and shit. Right. Well, no, he fell. I don't know if he was walking or if he was on it, but he fell under it somehow. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's always like they were on riding in their wagon, and they fell under the wheel and got crushed. How? Yeah. How did How? they fall off the wagon? Yeah. What are you doing? So Jumping much. jacks? Like, <laughs> It Sit always down. makes me think of Henry Lee Lucas's father. No legs, Lucas. Yes, no legs, Lucas. Yeah. yeah. Ever since that, Robbie used crutches to compensate for mm. his loss. And he was really like, what's what's the kid in Christmas Carol or whatever? Tiny Tim. Yes, he's like that. He didn't get a giant nail. No. As a, <laughs> as a, peg, as leg. a peg leg. He gets stuck in a lot of places, I think. Mm. Robbie notably told others not to feel sorry for him because he, quote, Looked forward to the day when, in heaven, he would once again have both legs. Do you think if he goes to hell, he'll have none? I don't know. <laughs> also, I just love that he's like, no, nah, I'll get my leg back in heaven. It's like, who told you that? It's well, not in the also, Bible. Also, that's you still have to live your whole life without, without a leg. that leg. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> and you also will get your limbs back. Yep. 
Fanny Gibbons turned 14 just one month earlier on November 22nd. She was, quote, a pretty girl who had matured early and was well-liked by all who knew her. Yeah, it's a gross description. On the night of Friday, December 23rd, day before Christmas Eve, 11-year-old Sterling and his mother Martha took a buggy to visit one of the eldest married daughters, Kate Shore, in Ironton, Ohio. Martha and Sterling planned to purchase a few gifts on the way and then stay at Kate's overnight. Yeah. That's cute. I like the name Sterling. Yeah. As they were leaving town, they saw their next door neighbor, Caroline Thomas, and Martha asked if she would let her daughter, Emma Carrico, stay the night at the Gibbons home. So Caroline had been married to someone with the last name Carrico. Okay. And then she remarried after I believe he died. I mean, that's the only way to get away. (laughs) Yeah. Probably the war took him. Um, So that's why... Emma's last name is Carrico. Some people refer to her as Emma Thomas, her stepdad's name. Yeah. Emma and Fanny were best friends, and Martha figured with her and Sterling gone and with John away, who knows where? I don't know. John the oldest? The father. The father. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We're all leaving. Yep. That Fanny and Robert might want some company. At home overnight. Also, how fun and exciting. Like, ooh, a sleepover before Christmas Eve. I know. Like, yay. Apparently, they were very excited for Christmas. Well, who isn't? It's so fun. Caroline agreed, and she sent Emma over to the Gibbons' house at around 6 p.m. Okay. And they lived, Aww. like, like you could see each other's houses. Yeah, for, yeah. They're Plus, back close. then, I mean, kids were walking miles Oh, below. yeah, yeah. Um, Robbie arrived home from work at around 8.30 that night. So, by 9 p.m., all three teenagers are at home. Right. So it's the 14-year-old, her friend, and, and the, the older teen. brother. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The next morning, Caroline Thomas, Emma's mother, woke up at 4.30 a.m. Yeah. She looked out of her window towards the Gibbons' house, and there was no sign of activity. It's 4.30 in the morning. Exactly. Caroline got out of bed, stoked the fire, and brought some more firewood inside. Then she looked toward the house again. And this time, she saw what she thought was a lamp in the front window. Caroline thought that it was far too early for the teens to be awake. Yeah. She stepped outside to take a better look, and that was when she realized that what she thought was a lamp was actually flames flickering through the window. Caroline ran toward the house, screaming fire. Caroline pounded on the door, screaming for Emma as the fire quickly spread. Eventually, the smoke became so thick at the door that Caroline was forced to back away. She then tried the side door and was able to open it because it was unlocked. Mm -hmm. But the smoke inside was so thick that she couldn't see in front of her. Caroline continued screaming until neighbors took notice. Joseph Arthur, another neighbor, heard her cries and was the first on the scene to help. Several other neighbors also came and began collecting water from a nearby stream in buckets and trying to put the fire out. Caroline became so hysterical that she had to be restrained while others attempted to rescue the teenagers. One neighbor, George Faulkner, broke the living room window. He checked the lounge where Robbie usually slept, but no one was there. Faulkner then broke the bedroom window where Fanny and Emma would have slept. He was able to make out the shape of a body on the floor. Faulkner recoiled at the sight, but John House, yet another neighbor, reached in through the window and grabbed the unconscious person's arm. House and a, quote, black neighbor were able to lift the body of Emma Carrico out of the building. Yeah, but then they had to set it on fire because the black man touched her. Exactly. Like, yeah. Emma was, quote, terribly burned and disfigured. Oh. House entered the building to recover the Gibbons children. Fanny Gibbons was on the bed, covered in burning sheets. He removed Fanny from the home and then went back in for Robbie after taking a big breath of clean air. Robbie was found with his head under the stairs to that, like, half, half Mm -hmm. second floor. Some tried to enter the home to save the Gibbons' belongings, but it quickly became too dangerous for anyone to go inside. The bodies of Emma, Fanny, and Robert were laid on a mattress on the cold ground. Townspeople rushed to the scene as the news spread, but onlookers were shocked at what they saw. Robbie had sustained a large gash on his head, and part of his brain was protruding from the wound. Emma and Fanny's skulls were both crushed in. There was blood on the sheets that had been pulled out of the house with the girls' bodies. The teens had been murdered. When the fire finally died out, the townspeople scoured the remains for evidence. An axe was found underneath the smoldering carpet. 
and it had been protected from the fire because hair and blood remained on the blade. Yeah. A crowbar was also recovered, and like the axe, it had hair and gore on it. The bodies were held in a neighbor's house until officials could arrive. Justice of the Peace Thomas Russell quickly came to the scene and called for doctors J.W. Martin, J.H. Wade, and W.F. Tiernan to examine the bodies. These were their findings. Quote, Robert Gibbons, the upper part of the left parietal bone was driven in for an area that would square about three inches. Some of the lacerated brains running out. Fanny Gibbons, found entire surface of the body changed. The whole frontal bone was driven back on the brain and squeezing a part of it out of the skull. Emma Thomas Carrico. The surface of the body burned, the parietal and temporal bones on the left side were driven down on the brain, and the irregular shape of the fracture would square an area of about two and a half inches. 14-year-old Fanny and 15-year-old Emma had been violently sexually assaulted as well. Further examination revealed that Emma had been strangled, and Robbie had probably tried to call for help or confront the people who were there, mm-hmm. people, person, whatever, but had been struck with the hatchet from behind mm. as he headed towards the door. And then he fell. Mm-hmm. Coal oil was poured onto the victim's clothing to burn the bodies, but this attempt was unsuccessful and the killer or killers lit the house of flame instead. Three people traveled across the river to Ironton, Ohio, to break the horrific news to Martha Gibbons, who again had just lost her youngest child a year ago. John was still nowhere to be found. On Christmas Eve at 2 p.m., a special meeting was held at the Aldine Hotel. Hundreds of people from the area attended. Mayor John Means led the meeting and announced a $200 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator of the murders. Six people were appointed to collect donations for the Gibbons and Carrico families and to hire a detective. An additional three people formed a committee to handle the distribution of the funds and to find a detective to hire. They settled on John T. Norris from Springfield, Ohio, who had become known for his work on the Little Reddy McKimmy gang case a few years prior. In addition, Chief Detective of the Eureka Detective Agency, Alf Burnett from Charleston, West Virginia, volunteered his services. Norris quickly considered John Gibbons the prime suspect. The townspeople were not immediately receptive to this notion, especially because it would mean that John Gibbons raped his own 14-year-old daughter. Norris theorized that John may have mutilated the bodies and made it appear that a sexual assault had been committed to purposefully throw investigators off of his trail. Rumors spread that John had been exhibiting strange behavior, but these rumors were proven untrue. On January 2nd, John returned to Ashland with a credible alibi for the night of the murders, and that's when he found out that his children were dead and his house was gone. What was the alibi? Uh, They didn't specify, but they said he had documents. He was probably out trying to get work in a different state. Detective Heflin, a member of the Ashland police, took over the investigation after Norris's theory fell apart. Heflin followed a tip from a local cigar shop owner by the name of Powell. Powell, of Geiger, Powell, and Ferguson, was working in the shop one day in January when a man named George Ellis came in. Ellis was 27 years old and had been married just under a year prior. He stood at 5 feet and 9 inches and was, quote, stoutly built. His landlord described him as an, quote, industrious young man who always seemed to conduct himself in a proper manner. Powell and Ellis started talking and Powell brought up John Gibbons' newfound innocence. He asked Powell who he thought the crime would, quote, fall on now. Ellis became noticeably nervous. His hands started shaking, and after pausing for several moments, Ellis replied, quote, I think I have a clue, and if I had the witness, it would be all right, but I am afraid they would turn state's evidence. Powell asked Ellis what he meant by that, and Ellis didn't answer and just quickly left the shop. Another man, William Eba, ran into Ellis near the train station and noticed he was, quote, visibly startled. Powell and Eba reported the strange interactions to the Citizens Committee, and Heflin had Ellis brought to the Ardine Hotel for questioning. Ellis was extremely nervous. He fidgeted, stammered, and stumbled over his words. 
Heflin told Ellis that if he told the truth, he may receive a lighter sentence than whoever had committed the crimes with him. Ellis's confession was recorded and reads as follows. While working in the brickyard of Powell and House, William Neal told me that there was a girl in town that he would give $5 to have intercourse with. Emma Thomas was the girl. Quote, I intend to have intercourse with her if it costs me my life and that before Christmas. A few nights before Christmas, I went home and found Lizzie Church there. Afterwards came Ellis Kraft. Kraft said, quote, I am going to get Fanny Gibbons some black candy and take it to her on Christmas Eve night. He said this candy was in all imaginable vulgar shapes. I've heard him say many a time that he was going to have intercourse with Fanny Gibbons before he left the place. He has not been at my house since the murders. I am a good friend of Kraft, also a friend of Neil. I give these statements voluntarily for the good of the community. I assisted at the burning house. I handled the bodies at the fire. I saw both Kraft and Neil at the fire early. Ellis went on to tell the committee that the three men went to the Gibbons house around midnight on Friday, December 23rd to, quote, have some fun. Ellis supposedly went only after Kraft threatened him with a revolver. They basically came to his house a little before midnight and they were like, hey, come out. And he was like, no, mm -hmm. like I'm sleeping and my wife is here. And they were like, come out or we'll shoot you. And he was like, OK, like that. That's you so know. fun. Right. When they got to the Gibbons home, Kraft found an old axe outside the house and picked it up. He opened the door to the front porch. Ellis initially refused to go inside, but Kraft again threatened him with the revolver. The door to the inside of the house was right next to the couch where Robbie slept. Now, I will say later that this account, he kind of switches when Robbie is killed and when the girls are killed. But this okay. was the original story. Robbie stirred and began to wake up. Kraft told him, quote, you had better lie still before moving on to the bed where Fanny and Emma slept. Robbie warned Kraft, quote, you had better stay away from there and started to get up. That was when Kraft hit Robbie with the axe. He fell on the lounge and then about six feet forward and landed below the stairs where his body would later be found. At this point, Emma and Fanny were awake and began screaming. Kraft jumped on the bed and Emma asked, quote, Ellis Kraft, what are you here for? Neil dragged Emma off of the bed and began choking her on the floor. Emma fought back and Neil called Ellis to help him hold Emma down. Emma said to Neil, Oh, Bill, I did not think you would do this. She said she would run and get her mother. Neil replied, quote, I guess you won't, and then struck her on the head with the crowbar. Mm. According to Ellis, Emma died instantly, and he even said that her arms kind of flew up as she was hit and then down at her sides. While Emma was being murdered, Kraft was raping Fanny on the bed. He called out for Ellis's help, and Ellis, quote, only laid three fingers on her shoulder where she lay still. Kraft was choking Fanny nearly to death when he hit her with the side of the axe until her skull caved in. When all three teenagers were dead, Kraft said, quote, We will be suspected. We had better burn the house. Kraft told Ellis that he had to find coal oil or he would be shot. Ellis found a can of coal oil in the kitchen and tried to give it to Kraft, but Kraft told Ellis that he had to pour it on the girls because, quote, you have done none of the killing, but you must have some hand in it. Ellis did as he was told. Kraft struck a match and lit Emma on fire. Then he did the same to Fanny on the bed. Ellis told Kraft and Neil that he was leaving. Kraft told Ellis that he would be killed if he told anyone what they had done. Ellis told the committee that Neil and Kraft may have returned to set the house ablaze when they found that the bodies had stopped burning. According to Ellis, the whole ordeal took only a little more than half an hour. He said probably under an hour, somewhere between a, a half hour and an hour. Ellis stated, quote, I tell this because I cannot keep it. I have not slept nor eaten but little since that terrible night. I could not run away. My wife knows nothing of my guilt in this matter. I tell this for fear Kraft or Neil will tell it first and turn state's evidence. I want to die and would have killed myself, but I was afraid. All I want is that the guilty party shall be punished. My father and mother are living, and I have five brothers and three sisters. My wife is a good woman. Please take good care of her and send her home before my trouble comes. I would like to see her before I die. 
All I ask of this committee is that you pledge your word that you will not let the mob get me before taking me to jail, but take me to prison at once, for I want to get safely in the courthouse and tell all that happened that terrible night, so that the others may be punished also. I don't want to be hung by the mob until all is told in court. I will trust your pledge to keep me safely till you land me in jail. Wow. After Ellis confessed, the committee sent for Ellis Kraft, which is kind of confusing because one guy's last mm-hmm. name is Ellis, one guy's first name is Ellis. Right. And so he came to the hotel. Kraft was 27 years old and a bachelor. He, like the other men, was white. He stood at five feet, six inches tall and had dark hair and a mustache. Kraft was known for living a, quote, wild and reckless life. He had been arrested several times, twice for disorderly conduct, and three times for criminal intercourse with young girls. He had to leave the country for over a year to evade these charges. He also shot... Just the over a year? Yeah, yeah. You know, back then, it was easier to get away with stuff. He also shot at a man by the name of Proctor only four months before the murders. Kraft had reportedly made, quote, lewd advances towards Proctor's wife, and Proctor had confronted Kraft. Kraft was described as, quote, a rough, uncouth person whose conversation was known to have been vulgar among his companions. Ellis repeated the story in Kraft's presence, and Kraft responded, George, how can you tell such a lie? Then William Neal was sent for. Neal was the largest of the three men at 5 feet 11 inches. He was 25 years old, married, and the father of three small children. He was described as having a, quote, devil-may-care manner. Again, Ellis retold the story, and Neil disagreed with it. Ellis, Kraft, and Neil were taken to the jail and placed together. Ellis then went back on his statement, likely due to pressure by Kraft. So they moved him to a separate jail to avoid Kraft's influence over the Mm. star witness and co-defendant. Ellis was thought to possibly be, quote, feigning craziness, or as we would call it today, malingering, and began pacing the length of his cell and uttering, quote, the most unearthly moans and groans. The news that the men had been arrested for the murder spread quickly after being published in the next day's paper. Stores and factories actually closed for the day, and people gathered in the streets to form a mob. Like, this was an official, like, yay, day off of work to form a mob thing. Yeah. On January 4th, 1882, the Cincinnati Inquirer published an article that included this sentence. People flocking from all points to the jail where the prisoners are confined. Intense excitement at Catlitzburg, where a lynching is expected. Several newspapers were like, a lynching is imminent. Like, this shit's going to go down. Let's go. Grab your news. Exactly. Ten armed men guarded the prison against the forming mob. The bodies of the teenagers, who were buried together the Monday after their deaths, were exhumed. They were re-examined, and the wounds matched George Ellis's version of events. When they were reburied, each victim had their own grave. So they were all buried together at first, but then they got their own plots. The trial convened on January 15th, but the start was pushed back to the next day to avoid an incoming lynch mob. So (laughs) there was word that came to the courthouse that like, hey, a mob's on their way here. And the judge was like, well, fuck, I don't know if that's true or not. So I got to We got to shut down for the day. Yeah. While Ellis, Neil and Kraft were being transported back to the prison by a steamboat named the Mountain Girl, a crowd of people spotted the defendants on the boat, which had not yet gathered enough steam to begin its journey. It was warming up. (laughs) Quickly, the defendants were moved to a ferry and started down the river just before the mob boarded the Mountain Girl. As soon as the mountain girl had gained steam, they started after the ferry. So now we have a river chase going on. The ferry had a two-mile start on the mountain girl, but word spread to Ashland that the prisoners were incoming and a crowd gathered. However, the mountain girl sailed right past the Ashland port and instead met a steamer called the Hudson, which had been sent by Kentucky Governor Luke P. Blackburn to protect the defendants. The Hudson was carrying 25 Maysfield guards on it. The trial reconvened the following day, January 16th, and lasted 10 days. All three men were charged with aiding, abetting, and conspiring to murder. Kraft and Neal were charged with first-degree murder. Ellis Kraft pled not guilty, while William Neal pled guilty and confessed. Wow. Later, changing his plea to not guilty. Oh, my God. Right. 
George Ellis was charged separately with three counts of manslaughter, which, according to laws at the time, that enabled him to testify as a witness at their trial because it wasn't the same exact charge. Gotcha. At trial, Ellis's story changed only slightly with Robbie waking up to the sounds of Emma and Fanny struggling and not with Robbie being woken up first. Ellis recounted how Kraft and Neil had tried to silence the girls by choking them and covering their mouths with their hands. He told the court that after Neil had raped Emma, she had told him that she knew him and was going to tell her mother what he had done. Ellis identified the murder weapons before the court as well. The crowbar still had some of Emma's hair on it. Mm. Ellis also added to his story, quote, The next Sunday, Christmas Day morning, I was near the burned house when Kraft came along and asked me to take a walk. We then walked out beyond the cemetery where we were met by Neil. After some talk on the subject of the murder, they told me I must sign a pledge that I would not tell. I said, I will see about it. They said I could have until Saturday night to sign it, and if I did not sign it by that time, they would stretch my neck. I afterward had a conversation with Neil on the subject at the rolling mill, in which Neil asked me if I had made up my mind to sign the pledge. I said I would see about it. Neil told me I had better do it. I was at the Gibbons house that night about an hour or hour and a half and could not sleep when I came back for thinking of the terrible crime I had committed. Ellis was questioned on the stand and asked about supposed statements he had made to fellow prisoners about Kraft and Neil being innocent. Ellis denied remembering those statements and told the court, quote, I do not remember all I said on various occasions. I was very much confused and excited most of the time. Others testified that William Neal was seen at the site of the fire after sunrise on Christmas Eve. He was reportedly standing with his hands in his pockets and observing the scene. In fact, all three men had been seen in the crowd in the hours after the fire, and Kraft even helped shuffle through some of the rubble. John Gibbons testified that he had heard William Neal tell two men that he, quote, would like to have intercourse with Emma. A local man named Edgar Hubbard told the court that he had passed the Gibbons house at around 3.15 a.m. and again at 3.20 a.m. and no fire had been lit, indicating that the house was set ablaze sometime between 3.20 a.m. and 5 a.m. Right. When Caroline saw it. So probably closer to five. Yeah. Close to when she saw it. Yeah. Because when she looked the first time. Quickly. Yeah. yeah and when she lurked, were in, or looked for the first time, there, there was, was no light. Yeah. So it couldn't have been that. Mm-hmm. That's spread that far. Yeah. Ellis Kraft and William Neal were found guilty and were sentenced to hang. George Ellis was also found guilty and sentenced to life in prison on May 30th. However, the people were unhappy with Ellis's evasion of the death penalty. That night, a group of 40 masked men breached the jail where Ellis <gasps> was being held and dragged him out to the street. They put a noose over his neck and hung him from a sycamore tree in a brickyard right near where the Gibbons house once stood. Kraft and Neil appealed their convictions without success. Kraft's brother testified that he had found a black man named William Dyerly in Columbus, Ohio, who had supposedly confessed to the murders. Dyerly had allegedly come into possession of a bracelet that belonged to one of the murdered girls and had given it to a woman he knew. The court did not believe this story at all. Yeah. They actually made note of it at the time. They were like, he is trying to blame a black man for this crime. Like, they knew exactly what was happening. Kraft and Neil were each found guilty for a second time in separate trials. Kraft was hanged on October 12th, 1883, and Neil was hanged on March 27th, 1885. Both men claimed their innocence until their final breaths. That's crazy. Right? That's crazy that they killed that one guy. I know. That seems a little harsh, honestly. It does. I mean, if you believe his story, but that's the thing with this. It's like, we just don't have enough to go on to be like, oh yeah, no, he was definitely telling the truth. I mean... It seems like he might have been, but also if he was more involved than he said he was and he was trying to get a lighter sentence, he would do exactly what he did. Yeah. So. I don't believe in the death penalty, so I don't exactly. think anyone should have died there. But definitely not in the own hands of, like, being ripped out of the jail and being. Not only did they believe in the death penalty, they yearned for it. Yeah. <laughs> what a sad story, too. Oh, it my gosh. Really Those poor kids. Yeah. Poor Robbie with his one leg. <laughs> He's trying to 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. That he only has one leg, right? he tried to save everyone. Yeah. They didn't even have to hit him that hard to knock him over. He should have just pretended to stay sleeping. Maybe. Yeah. And then at least he could be like, these are the people who... And who knows if they would have killed him anyway. If he didn't wake up or challenge them, who knows? But, like, ooh, how fucking brutal. And also... These men are all in there. They're like twenty five and up, and they're yeah. like, we they like are they're like itching t- to have about sex how they about want teenagers. Sex. And the one guy's like, I'm gonna do it before Christmas. It's like, sir, she's fourteen. Yeah, like, chill out. Yeah, what the fuck? A fourteen year old and a fifteen year old. Like, why are these men just like so obsessed with these kids? Yeah. Either way, that's creepy. Uh, yeah. Either I mean, either way, fuck them. Yeah. Right. But. Yeah, with Ellis, it's more like, fuck him? Like, I well, don't know. I mean, yeah, because, well, here's the thing. Had he not gone with them, I don't know if they actually would have shot him or not, but they still would have done what they did. You know yeah, what I mean? But also, that's if we completely believe yeah. what he said. I mean, it was consistent. There was the telling the other prisoners that maybe they were innocent. You, yeah, you but know, did but that actually t- happen, or were the other prisoners like, no. Well, that's what the other prisoner. Some of the other prisoners had reported and been like, "Hey, he said they're innocent." But he was also like, "Yeah, I was kind of going crazy in jail. Like, right. I was not having a good time." Right, and he might have been like, "You know what? Like flip flopping back and forth of like, oh, I made a mistake. I'll say yeah. we'll all, we're all innocent mm-hmm. now, and then oh no, now I feel guilty again. No, we're not yeah. innocent. And then oh, our whole lives are ruined. I'll say we're innocent again. Yeah. You know? Well, and just like." Neil was like, okay, I didn't do it. And then he was like, yes, I did it. And then he was like, I didn't do it, you know? So I think it's a hard decision to make because even in that situation, if they were like, oh, yeah, they're guilty, but we're not going to kill them. Or if they were like, oh, they're not guilty, the people still would have fucking killed them. Like, they were ready. They They were were ready ready from the moment they were arrested. Yeah. All the way to the end of that fucking trial. Which is crazy. They waited months to yeah. do that. It's That's insane. wild. But, you know. Yeah. You get angry. They do. They love vengeance. Yeah. Okay. Well, those were bummers. Happy Christmas. Those were bummers everyone. of holiday episodes. Just like Tiny Tim would say. Yeah. Also, both fire, which was weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Both fire deaths, kind of. Yeah, but mine was set on fire alive. Yeah, which is worse. Mm. Yeah, but yours had children. Yeah, mine was children. So so we even out. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) on the horrific Olympics. Yeah. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Okay. Well, what do you think? Do we have one more holiday episode before we're done with holiday episodes, or no? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Well, we'll see. Maybe. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll definitely have like a New Year's episode, I think, because we're going to be together Christmas time. Yeah. And also we can figure out our recording and everything. Mm -hmm. But now we've got a few. We actually have recorded three, our three episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, We recorded in pretty quick succession. So um, just like the show. Yep, exactly. I've never watched that show either. (laughs) I still want to watch that show that you told me about that has. Kevin Jonas and Frankie Jonas. Oh <laughs> my God! Claim to fame, yes. baby. It's so good. And I think season two's coming out soon. I really want to watch it. It's I think so I looked good. it up, and it's I forget what streaming platform Hulu. it's on. It's on Hulu. It's on okay. Hulu. Yeah, I gotta watch all that. the all the episodes. Season one are out, which is great because you don't have to wait weeks. I had to wait in between every yeah. episode, and oh, you get to find out who everyone. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, I want to watch that. That might be a good. Stress relieving watch. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. And yeah. like and also you get to like try to figure out who mm-hmm. everyone is, which is nice. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Yes. Um, we are Helen High Horror on everything except on Twitter. We're Hell High Horror for however long that platform exists going mm, forward. It's a dumpster fire. It is. By the time you're listening to this, it could already It'll be gone. Be gone. <laughs> I did see a tweet from Elon Musk today that was like, Twitter this... traffic is up however many percent. And then someone was like, yeah, if your house is on fire and a bunch of people gather onto your front lawn, you're not like, wow, I've not had so, I've never had so <laughs> many visitors, you know? <laughs> Our email is also hellandhighhorror at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am Austin Castelli 
on Instagram. I am Hyatt's Austin on TikTok and Twitter. I am Refi Like Peppy on Instagram and on TikTok. And then on Twitter, I'm Referat I am. Perfect. If you want to get in touch. Beautiful. While it lasts. Yeah, while it um, lasts. <laughs> while I last. Well, we hope everyone has really, really happy holidays, whatever yes. it is. Eat lots of good food. Yes. Whether it's Kwanzaa or Hanukkah, Hanukkah or, or Christmas. Christmas. Um, or. I don't know what any of the other ones. Boxing Day. Yes. Aw. Happy Boxing <laughs> happy Day, boxing Canadians. Day. <laughs> um, I thought it was British. <laughs> I thought it was Canadians. Oh, it originated in Great Britain. Okay. And it's celebrated in a number of countries that previously formed part of the British Empire. Okay. So, yeah. In actually many parts of Europe, they celebrate it. Okay. Well, Happy Canada's Boxing Day, not everyone. Part of Europe. No. <laughs> and Canada. They're the bonus. <laughs> they're everyone's. What hat. if we found out right now, even though you're so smart, that you, for this whole entire time, have thought Canada was in Britain? That would be you very like, funny. Yeah, but Canada's in Great Britain. <laughs> I would love that. It's like that Facebook post where this chick posted, like, from Washington Square Park in New York. She's like, goodbye, America. Hello, New York. And yeah. sounds like New York is in America. And she goes, she goes, huh, I think I would know better, stupid girl. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Uh, okay. Well, until next time, happy hauntings, yes. everyone. Bye. Bye. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Mm -hmm. 